This is God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no, one, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Paphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Just going to have a little check to make sure I'm definitely being recorded this week. So, we've been looking over the last couple of months now at this sub- subject of joy, uh, understanding that, that, that pretty much everybody in the world you'll ever meet wants a bit of joy in their lives. It is never something that people will say, no, I don't want joy, I want to, I want to avoid it. And we've been looking through the book of Philippians that can be described, uh, among many things, as being the book of joy. Despite the situation that Paul has been in, the levels of joy that he has been writing about and expressing are overwhelming. He's had joy, as we saw uh, earlier on in our series, in the Philippian believers themselves, the church at Philippi that Paul planted many years earlier. Joy in the way that they have been growing in their faith and what they've been doing. That, that has brought him joy. Paul has also uh, received joy from seeing the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through that church. He's had joy himself in knowing Christ. Joy in gaining Christ. Joy in in his glorious future, what lies ahead? And so in our final installment this evening, Paul shares with us the final roots, if you like. Remember the tree and, and, and the roots of joy going, going down. Or, or the various mines that are plumbed in order to get to the treasure, the, the gold of joy. Or the anchors of the boat to hold it still. The final installment, the final anchor that Paul brings us this evening is joy in contentment. Joy in contentment. It's, it's actually odd because one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians is to thank them for the gift that they sent to him. And yet, he leaves it till the end of the entire letter to thank them for the gift. It's as if Paul is saying, as important and as lovely and as wonderful as it has been to be blessed by your gift, your financial giving to me, says Paul, to the church, there are so many more important things I've got to get to first before I get round to thanking you for your gift. 
To quote the famous prophet Jesse J, it's not about the money, money, money. Paul has other priorities. Sorry, that was a cultural reference there. I'll explain to you later, mum and dad. (laughs) Paul talks about contentment, and he shares, number one, the shape of contentment, what it looks like. Number two, he talks about the effects of contentment, what we should see. And number three, finally, he talks about the source of contentment. And if we put these three things together, that should provide another mechanism for us to receive joy. So number one, the shape of contentment according to the Apostle Paul. We see, starting off in verse 10, Paul is giving thanks, he rejoices in the Lord greatly that you have, this is to the church, revived your concern for me. He has joy, he gives thanks to God for the gift that they sent him. But then almost immediately as that comes out of his mouth, he adds a disclaimer in verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's not in need, according to this letter, which is odd because Paul is is in prison. He's under house arrest. He's possibly been there for several years. And if anything, he comes across here as being a little bit, bit rude. You know, they've just gone out of their way to send him this gift, and yet he says, no, I'm, I'm not in need. I don't need it. But that's not exactly what Paul is getting at. He, he, he tries to make his statement clearer, because he says then, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. That is why he's not in need. He has learned in whatever situation he is in to be content. He qualifies this in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul has been there. Paul has experienced it. He has gone from, from a time from grinding poverty right through, according to him, to times of great comfort and riches at various points in his life and probably in between the two. Any and every situation he has experienced it, and yet he says, according to this letter, I have learned the secret of how to handle myself in all of those situations, the highs and the lows and everything in between. I know I've learned the secret of how to be content. And that's why he's not in need. That's why he says in verse 11, I'm not in need. But yet the great thing about this letter and and the, the verses we're about to examine a bit more closely is that that secret to contentment he shares with the church and he shares it with us too through through his letter he has learned to be content to be satisfied not to be in want despite whatever life throws at him and so the question we're going to ask ourselves is how does he do it because once we understand that we can understand how it works for us see in a in a 21st century life that we live in just now if anything the deck is stacked against us or so it feels because it can be especially difficult for us in our Western society to learn contentment. It is is one of the virtues that is almost absent in our Western society because we prize, as people in general, above most other things, individual wealth leading to self-sufficiency and self-determination 
We don't need anything from anyone because we've made it ourselves and we get to determine everything about ourselves. That is the, the Western mindset. And that's egged on, as you can probably guess, as you switch on TV or watch movies and all that, by the skill and the ability of various advertising companies and media that just add to this overall understanding that there is no joy, no satisfaction, no contentment unless you buy this thing, this product. And so it feeds into this greater cultural understanding. And all the advertising and all the media and all that sort of stuff just creates more desire to possess and acquire more and more and more stuff. And yet Paul here in this letter, his version of contentment is so radically different from our 21st century cultural understanding that it's almost the opposite pole to what our world would tell us is the means to contentment. And he wants that for us too. His contentment that he's about to lay out for us is a rebellion against our own culture. It is deeply subversive for Christians to live out of this kind of contentment that Paul is talking about against the flow of our own culture. And what he says is this, whether you are well off or you are poor, whether you have resources or you have none, it is possible, irrespective of all of those things, to learn contentment. He says there is a way to discover deep levels of contentment and joy, which quite frankly are unavailable out there in the world, except by the gospel. So how does he do it? He says in verse 12, I have learned the secrets. I've learned the secret. This language comes as a reference to various sort of mystery religions around at that time uh, in the first century AD, uh, which would teach uh, salvation in some ways, the possession of some hidden knowledge, getting to enlightenment. And And you get there by progressing through a number of steps until you attain this knowledge. And so Paul borrows this language and he says, I have learned, I have attained the secrets of contentment. But it's not like these mystery religions, because I'm going to share it with you now, he says. See, to understand contentment from Paul's point of view, we have to understand his thinking as a whole, and, and particularly look at his letter as a whole. We can't just come to this, verse 10 to 20, in a bubble. It's connected to his thought throughout the whole letter, no more so than what you consider to be the high watermark of everything he says in chapter 3, verse 8, is the passage that Noah preached on a few weeks ago. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is loss compared to knowing Christ. And see, if you understand this central tenet of what Paul is talking about, then you can start to understand where his contentment comes from and how we might have that same experience of contentment. Everything is lost compared to knowing Christ as my Lord. 
Paul has seen, he has savoured Christ, he has been transformed by him, and in comparison to that, everything else is loss, according to Paul. Let's put this in maybe modern language to help describe better what he's, he's saying. Imagine Paul had uh, stocks and shares. Imagine he got a bonus at work. Imagine he got a, a pay rise. In that case, he would say, nothing in all of that is any comparison to the riches that I have in Christ. All of that stuff is a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. But imagine, it goes the other way for Paul. Imagine the stocks go down, the market crashes, he goes bankrupt, he gets sacked from his job. He will say again, there is nothing in comparison to all of that compared to the riches that I have in Christ. My satisfaction and my worth come from him and him alone. See, Paul sees the times of poverty and the times of abundance in the light of chapter 3, verse 8. Everything is lost compared to knowing Christ. Rather than being tossed around, subject to the ups and downs of what is going on practically in life, Paul is sailing peacefully through with contentment. Instead, he sees the varying circumstances that he finds himself in as challenges and opportunities to grow, to increase his contentment rather than obstructions. When you read through the book of Exodus, you, know, you see the story of Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were enslaved there for, for 400 years or so. And so Moses leads thousands and thousands of Israelites out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. And, and in so doing, he brings the 10 great plagues upon the people of Egypt. And the Israelites see that. He delivers them during the day of the Exodus, and the Israelites see that. He does great works and mighty signs among them. He, he splits the Red Sea so they can walk through it, and the Israelites see that. They experience that. But as we go on in the book of Exodus, we see that only a few days into their journey, having seen all of that stuff, they start grumbling and groaning and saying to Moses, give us water to drink. Despite all they'd seen God doing, they chose to grumble and complain, to disbelieve God. He could have provided water, and indeed later does, from a rock. And rather than coming to God and trusting in Him and believing Him and using that as an opportunity for God to, to demonstrate his, his trustworthiness and his abilities, they instead choose to disbelieve. They failed the test. They could have grown themselves in their contentment, in their joy, in their trust in God, and yet they failed the test. Paul here instead sees the test whether it is the thirst in the wilderness, whether it is poverty of riches, whether it is poverty in any form, as an opportunity to learn and grow in contentment. We're going to sing a song towards the end of our service. It says a line that I love, but I think it's been really helpful for this series. It says this, 
Should I ever be abandoned? Low. Should I ever be acclaimed? High. There is a name I shall remember, a name I shall proclaim. Let it be Jesus. The words of this song we're about to sing sum up all that Paul is sharing in this passage. And so for us here today in Foundation Church, it is possible for us to learn contentment in the way that Paul describes it here. Bit by bit, test by test, circumstance by circumstance, it is possible to learn contentment. And as I probably shared at the beginning of this series, that is something I need to learn as well, more and more. I'm not standing here before you today as an expert in contentment, giving you some of my own personal experiences of how I've learned the secret, just like Paul. Not at all. I I stand here as one of you, among you, struggling to hold on, desiring to learn more and more contentment in Christ, to learn the lessons that Paul does here. And the cool thing about church is that we get to do this together. It's not an individual pursuit. It's something we do as fellow members. I want to get to that day, and I pray that you do too, where you will be able to say, I have learned the secret. Past tense. I've come up with six practical things that may help you um, to, when you come to these times, these tests, these circumstances, whether highs or lows, how to walk into greater levels of contentment. Life is not a rehearsal, by the way. Uh, We don't get to get through the bad stuff and then get on to the good stuff. Life is not a rehearsal. So, for example, number one, let's see every moment, every test as an opportunity to learn and grow in our contentment. Rather than thinking it's something we just have to avoid or overcome and get through, and then we get to grow in contentment. No, it is through those opportunities, those tests, that we choose to grow in contentment if we want. How might we do that? Point number two here out of six. It helps to remember the saving work of God in history, something the Israelites failed to do, and they've only just literally walked out of the Red Sea, forgot what God could do, what he's capable of, and yet they chose to forget. Let's choose to remember the saving work of God in history by reading the Scriptures, reading the Gospel, understanding more about how God has interacted with humankind throughout the generations. And that's something we recall here every Sunday, by the way, in our service. We can remember and recall the saving work of God in us. The before and after, if you like. What God has done in you, with you. How he has transformed you. Remember, number four, and recall the saving work of God in other people. In your church. Because if you're anything like me, sometimes you sit and look at yourself and think, well, I can't right now see any work of God in my life. But I can see it in Jacob. I can see it in Stephen, I can see it in Sharon. And they can probably, possibly see it in me too. And so that is the joy, again, of doing this together in the church. Remember and recall the saving work of God in other people, as well as you. Number five, practical step. Ask for the power of restful contentment. Irrespective of the situation. 
I love that phrase. I got, I got it from one of the commentators on, on this passage. Restful contentment, irrespective of the situation. Sixthly, finally, it might help you to journal your experiences, write them down somewhere, to enable you to see over the months and years how you have grown in contentment when you look at what God has done in your life. So that's the shape of our contentment, according to Paul. Whether it's highs or lows, plenty or need, he has learned how to be content. But then he moves on uh, to the effects of contentment. That is, what flows from a life of contentment. One of the clearest effects flowing from a life of contentment, according to Paul, is in our giving, our attitude to money. He says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. They had a a deep affection for, for Paul and Paul had a deep affection for the church. And so they wanted to supply the resources that he needed so that he could keep on ministering the gospel in all parts of the world. And so they gave, and that's the, the, the occasion of this letter, Paul thanking them for the giving of this financial gift brought to them by the hand of this man called Epaphroditus, who was from the church in Philippi. And their giving had three characteristics. Number one, it was generous. It says in verse 15, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning, uh, when I, at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. And later on in verse 16, he says, you came and helped my needs once and again. He says in verse 18, I've received full payment and more, I am well supplied. It seems to be that the first characteristic of their giving was that it was generous, once stingy. Again and again, he says, you tried. You partnered with me, a long-term, deep commitment to minister with Paul. It was generous. Number two, it was determined. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help. If you read Acts 16 and Acts 17, where Paul first preaches the gospel in Philippi, he plants the church, he stays time with them, building up the believers, then he moves on to Thessalonica, the next city along up the coast. And things weren't quite so rosy for him, although it wasn't exactly great in Philippi, but mobs of hostile people went after Paul and his companions, seeking to do them harm, hopefully to remove them from the world for good. But despite the hostility, despite the mobs, the church of Philippi, and they're only weeks old, if that, wanted to get help through to Paul. They were determined. And yet they finally got help through to him there, finally got help through to him here in prison in Rome, many years later. The generous, the determined. Thirdly, the characteristic of their giving. They're devoted, devoted to Paul in his mission it says uh, back, back at chapter 1, verse 5, you are partners with me in the gospel. You see that again today in verse 15, entered into partnership with me. The same struggle I have, you have, Paul says in chapter 130. They loved him. They ministered with him. His struggles was their struggle. His mission was their mission. 
And so they were devoted to Paul in their giving. The principle I want to draw your attention to is this. Giving is the effect of contentment. Generous, determined, devoted giving. Or put it like this, if you're not contented, you won't be giving. Or another way, the level of your contentment is directly connected to the level of your giving to gospel ministry. Why is that? Because the shape of your contentment, whether in plenty or in need, has an effect on the way you use your resources. If you are discontented, whether you are rich or poor, you will tend to hang on to your resources, you will tend to hoard what you have, whether it's much or little. Whatever you do possess, you will, you will try and keep to yourself in an attempt to find happiness or contentment or security in something other than God. Giving is the effect of contentment. By the way, I just want to be clear as well. This right here, this, this, this connection between contentment and giving is a struggle for the rich as much as it is for the poor. Whether you consider yourself to be relatively well-off and comfortable, whether you consider yourself to be not very well-off and, and, and not comfortable, materially speaking, this is a struggle for both types alike. The poor may say to the rich person, it's all right for you. You have everything you want. For you, contentment is easy. But that person forgets the emptiness that material possession has. But likewise, the rich person can say to the poor person, it's all right for you, you have very little. It's easy to cultivate contentment when you don't have very much at all. But then they forget the immense practical difficulties of living in material poverty. But Paul will have neither way. For him, Christ Jesus is of inestimable worth. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, that will have an effect on your generosity. And so for us as a church, our giving is an indication of our contentment. We're not talking here, by the way, about the amount or what way we do the giving or whatever way it looks. We're talking about the heart behind it. Is our giving as a church and individuals within the church, is it generous, is it determined, and is it devoted like it was for the Philippians? Do we do however much it takes, whatever it takes, to whomever it takes? For those of you who've been around uh, for a while, you'll, you'll know that, that we're having conversations with a group called Christians Against Poverty, who are a well-established uh, Christian charity, and now very diverse, um, providing help for those in material poverty. Um, but their ministry extends further than that now. And we have been thinking and praying as a church about partnering with them, um, particularly uh, with reference to uh, what, they, what they call a life skills course, uh, which is something the CAP do, uh, an eight-week course that, that's provided by and through the local church uh, to help people, whether they're in debt or, or not, um, to develop skills that will help them uh, to 
live well. Whether it comes down to money handling, whether it comes down to cooking, um, whether it comes down to relationships and how to deal with difficult relationships. That's what this thing sets out to do. And as a church, we're asking, is this, is this right for us? Is it right for us now to, to, to take on? It's a great opportunity, from what I've heard so far, for us to serve people in our area, uh, to serve them practically, to share Christ naturally as, as we do so. But for us as a church, and we're only small, there, there is a cost. Yes, in terms of money, but a, a cost in terms of, of time and volunteers. There's a sacrifice. And so we need to ask ourselves, in connection with our contentment, are we as a church going to be generous, determined, and devoted? Especially for the person who, Lord willing, is going to be the life skills coach manager or life skills manager who will be called by God into this position from, from among ourselves. Generous, determined, devoted. This partnership with CAP that we're, we're looking at is one of many ways that as Foundation Church we want to reach out and, and share the gospel and, and, and practical help to those on our doorstep. We have a, a bigger vision uh, globally, planting churches, training gospel workers, And as families within a church and as individuals within a church, whichever way you look at it, the effect of contentment is in our giving. It's a key indicator. So we've seen uh, Paul describe in these verses, first of all, the shape of our contentment, the whether good times or bad, poverty or riches, I have learned contentment. We've seen the effects of that contentment in, in, in the model giving of the Philippian church and asking ourselves, does that reflect us in our contentment? If it doesn't, we need to look back at whether we're contented or not. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the source of the contentment, which just sows everything together. Where does this flow from? Where does this come from? Verse 19, look down. It says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Just let that sink in for a moment. Because what Paul has just said at the end of this paragraph explains why he is so confident. That's why he can say in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whether poverty or riches, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The source of Paul's contentment is verse 19. It is the abundant supply of the riches of God. Let's look at verse 19 in a little more detail because on this, everything hangs. Paul says, my God will supply. He doesn't say our God or your God. He says my God. And that's not because Paul has his own God and they have their own God. No, no, that's not what he's saying. What Paul is acknowledging here as that the God of my own personal experience, and you know all about it, church, Philippi, my God, who has proved himself trustworthy again and again in my life, my God, who has provided so that I can learn contentment, he is the God who is providing for you too. My God will supply every need of yours. Every need of 
yours. There is no qualification in what every need is. It is very broad. It is every situation, every need. It is material and it is spiritual. It's not one or the other. Every need of yours will be supplied by my God. Some of us listening to this or maybe grappling with this verse before may struggle with what Paul is saying, how open-ended that promise is. For those of us who are liberal or or left-leaning in our thoughts and our outlook on life may hear this promise that God will supply every need and they may think primarily that Paul is talking about material needs. After all, the context is in the gift that has been given to him. Therefore, those, that group of people may consider this promise about material needs and the church therefore has to get busy, has to alleviate poverty in Jesus' name, has to serve the poor, has to preach the, the social gospel. That's how they would read that. Other people who, who in their outlook are more conservative or, or lean to the right of the spectrum may hear this promise and they think, oh no, no, all those needs that Paul was referring to are the, are the spiritual needs. It's all about your relationship with Jesus Christ. They, they, they would perhaps downplay, without realising, the importance of material needs by saying it's all about the spiritual. But in reality, whether it's those who lean to the left or those who lean to the right, whether they are more liberal in their outlook or conservative in their outlook, Paul does not describe one or the other. He leaves it completely open. Both are intended, spiritual and physical, in this promise. They are equally assured that every need will be met. But is every need of yours, the next phrase or next bit, it is in glory. See, we don't need to be embarrassed or or need to minimise the scope of God's promise here uh, in this text especially for those of us of a conservative mindset we're worried that it might produce like the health and wealth prosperity gospel kind of thinking we don't want that no Paul says every need of yours will be supplied in glory that is the future realm that is the realm of the new heavens and the new earth where we'll ultimately experience the fulfillment of this promise in glory this place of total and ultimate satisfaction and contentment. God will supply every need for yours in glory. But, 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 elsewhere, in his writings, Paul understands that glory is something that is not wholly associated with a future, but something that believers possess now. Every need of yours will be supplied in glory, which is something we have now, something we will see in its fullness in the future. Leave that thought for one moment. Let's press on. According to his riches. These things are according to the riches of God, flowing from the infinite resources of our creator God. We're just looking at in the catechism. God, with his fatherly heart, according to his riches... And those riches are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the instrument, the vessel through which the abundant supply of God comes to us. 
But he's not only the vessel, he is the grounds, he is the focus of this abundant supply. In union with him by faith, he is the guarantee of God's abundant supply. Let's take all this stuff together in verse 19. What we're saying is this, the God of Paul who saw him through all of these circumstances, whether the highs or the lows. This God meets every need of yours, spiritual and material, flowing from God's fatherly heart and immense riches and resources, now in this life and in the age to come, through, in, and because of Christ Jesus, his Son. He is the source, he is the instrument, he is the focus of your contentment. And Paul grasps this amazing truth. And it is no wonder that he then finishes his writing by saying in verse 20, to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Paul knows how to be brought low. He knows how to be abounding. We started this series off looking at this hymn of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. And this same word, bought low, in the original language, in the Greek, is used not just of Paul, but of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 8, we realise that Jesus, the Son of God, being found in human form, humbled himself. He was bought low by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ himself in his earthly ministry was a working class man through the ministry uh, and the goodness of other people. He, he, he was supplied, place to lay his head, food to eat. He even said, referring to himself, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Sounds like he was homeless at least once. He died a debased death. And the last of his tiny possessions, his clothing, was raffled off. He was humiliated. But God raised him up. He was highly exalted. He had the name, has the name, that is above every name. And it is this that Paul sees. It is this that means that knowing Christ Jesus is of surpassing worth. Knowing him is greater than having or not having any material possession that this world can possibly have. And the same can be said for us too, who claim and cling to Christ by faith. When we realise that Christ went from riches to poverty so that we could come from poverty to riches we will get contentment. When we realise that in the Gospel we were not treated as our sins deserve, instead we were treated with the riches of the victory that Christ won. Then, if we get that, if we understand it, if we confess it and sing it and believe it and receive it, then we will see contentment grow in our lives, whether rich or poor. Then we will see the opportunities, the challenges, the trials in life as a chance to learn commitments when we see what christ has done how he came down to us to bring us up to him 
then we shall respond with the generosity of spirits because of our contentment in Christ. When we see what Christ did for us, then we will know the joy of contentment. To God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.